I bet if you ask the average Christian, what's your favorite book in the Bible? You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who said, Leviticus. Now, you might find someone every now and then, but you'd, you'd be hard-pressed. There's few people who've even heard a sermon preached from Leviticus, let alone going through it chapter by chapter. You yourself probably don't have very many yellow underlines in this book. Some of you might, but for the most part, it's a book that is left alone by a lot of people. It's something that people don't usually resort to for comfort in times of sorrow when they need strength. Usually we go to the Psalms or the Proverbs or something in the New Testament, but rarely would somebody say, I'm going through such a hard trial in my relationship with my husband or wife, I need to go to Leviticus. Yet, there's some precious truth and treasure in this book, as we pointed out uh, even as we began this study. Some of you have the experience of not even having read this book. Now, we've asked you to read the first seven chapters before tonight. I can just simply trust that you've done that. That's the easiest way to do it, is to read in advance before we go through it. But some of you have never read this book, and here's the reason why. You had a New Year's resolution. You said, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I've always wanted to do it, and this year it's a fresh start. I'm going to do it this year. And you were really smoking as you were going through the first part of Genesis, the creation, the flood. You were excited to discover God's cosmology. Then you moved on into the narratives, the stories of Abraham being called from Ur of the Chaldees, his son Isaac, the wife for his son, Eleazar, his servant, the sons of Jacob, Finally, Joseph and all of the epic stories concerning his trials and his life and how he was raised up in Egypt. You loved Genesis. Then you launched confidently into Exodus. And again, you were rewarded. You loved Exodus. The story of the deliverance of the children of Israel, the plagues that God sent upon Egypt, the miraculous opening of the Red Sea and the plagues as well as the deliverance through the Red Sea the wilderness journeys, the complaining, the murmurings of the children of Israel. You could relate. It was applicable in many regards. And you were just having a great time. The Bible is exciting, you thought. Then you hit Exodus 21, 22, 23. And kind of like you were off to a start and you started slowing down a little bit. The mud got a little thicker. You're, you're, the, the pace, you weren't running quite as fast. Some of you completely dropped the ball in Leviticus. After that part of Exodus, with all of the detailed laws, then all of the offerings and the blood that was shed in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you just thought, I, I don't even know where I'm at. This is like a book from outer space to me. And so we want to solve that tonight. We want to take you through, as a congregation, the book of Leviticus. Because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, Paul said, for our learning, doctrine, reproof, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. All of the Scripture is inspired. You say, yeah, but isn't Leviticus an exception? No, it's not. It's inspired by God, and the New Testament says all of these things were written in advance for our admonition, our learning. They're examples for us. This is part of God's curriculum. 
And I have to express a little bit of shame on behalf of all the other churches throughout the world that neglect taking their congregations through the Bible. If God didn't want it there, He wouldn't have put it there. There are lessons for us to learn as we go through it. You're going to discover this book has a lot to do with worship. It's exciting. In fact, if you look at your outline for a moment, you notice that we've taken that as the theme. And we see in the whole book, worship is expressed through all sorts of different avenues. Now, the first seven chapters deal with sacrifices and offerings in worship. The people of Israel have been given a law as they camped before Mount Sinai, that huge monolith out in the southern desert of Israel, now belonging to Egypt. As they camped there and God gave to Moses the law, Moses gave the law to the children of Israel. They were excited. They were excited about hearing what God wanted for their lives. But they were scared because thunder and lightning was peeling from Mount Sinai. They were scared to approach it. In fact, they said, Moses, you go and find out what God wants. And you come back and you tell us what God wants. We figure if you survive, then there's a good chance for us. But you go and you tell us God's laws. And we will perform everything God tells us to do. Now that's quite a statement, isn't it? Have you ever made a promise like that? God, I promise you show me your will and I'll do it. Well, the children of Israel made a bold promise that they could never keep. And even God recognized they're unable to keep that promise. They won't keep the law. Several chapters later, God said, Oh, that there was such a heart within my people. They couldn't keep it. It required a new heart. And all of the desires of their flesh and the energy they put into keeping of the law, they were unable to totally hang with it. So God raised the standard. Here's my laws. Israel failed and they broke the law. Thus, God now institutes offerings and sacrifices through the shedding of blood to make atonement because God knew they would break the law. Part of the institution of the law was a sacrificial system that including the shedding of blood of an innocent animal for the atonement, the remission of sin. It was a very bloody time in Israel's history. And it was something that continued every single day. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Now I read a little quip that I wanted to share with you tonight. It kind of puts Leviticus in perspective, taking it from its ancient setting to the 1990s. It's by Gordon Wenham who said, what is the essence of religious ritual in the Bible? It's a means of communication between God and man, a drama on a stage watched by human and divine spectators. Old Testament rituals express religious truths visually as opposed to verbally. They are the ancient equivalent to television. They watched these innocent animals. Imagine what that would be like. You bring an animal to the tabernacle. And by the way, the tabernacle looked like a slaughtering house as you approached it. The entire first part of the courtyard, you remember, there were implements for the slaughtering of animals. And what would that look like? What would that make you feel like? You take an innocent animal, maybe a nice little sheep, maybe a sheep that's been around the house for a while without spot or blemish from your own flocks. That thing is so cute, it's like a little pet. 
And you go up to it and you bring it to the priest. And the priest says, okay, lay your hands on it. And you lay your hands upon that sheep. Okay, now confess your sins over this animal. And you start naming out loud the sins that you have committed. You're making an admission to guilt. The laying on of the hands symbolized a transference of the guilt. Then you watched what your sin was capable of doing in destruction of life. This is the result of my sin. And you watched an animal as the priest would take a knife and slit its throat and drain its blood and the animal gave its life for your sin. It was a very humbling experience. Now remember, the tabernacle or the tent, to put it in modern vernacular, was, was the central point of the nation of Israel. Wherever you were, you would sort of convocate at this tent. It was in the middle of all the camps of Israel scattered round about it on all four sides. If you were approaching the tabernacle to place it in remembrance, you would see this courtyard made out of cloth, a cloth fence about seven feet high, 75 feet wide, 150 feet deep. Placed within it was another tent-like structure. It was a big courtyard that surrounded the tent. It was just sort of empty. And you came to that tent structure in the middle that was divided into two sections. The entire enclosure of that tent building, that cloth building, was 15 feet wide by 45 feet deep, divided into two, as we said. The first room was 30 feet by 15. The second room was, easy math, 15 by 15, right? If it's 15 wide, it's 45 feet deep, 30 and 15. The first room is called the holy place. If you were the priest, you'd walk in and the first thing you would see on your left-hand side would be a lampstand with seven branches from it. Um, can you see it behind me there? This was the lampstand. Now, this isn't the lampstand of the tabernacle, obviously. In fact, it wasn't quite this small. It was as, about as tall as a man. It was huge. They're making a replica of it today in Jerusalem at the Temple Institute. They're bringing gold from all over the world and fashioning a new menorah, seven-branch candlestick for the new temple that the Jews plan to build someday. But that's what you would see on the left-hand side. On your right-hand side, you would see a table with 12 loaves of bread. Each loaf represented each tribe of the children of Israel that were around that tabernacle. Right in front of you, as you would walk in, you'd see a tiny little golden altar, the altar of incense. And the priest would put incense upon the altar. Smoke would rise up, symbolizing the prayers of the people. Then there was a veil, and you couldn't go through that veil, unless it was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You could go through it once a year if you were the high priest and your sins had been atoned for. Then you would walk through it and you would see the Ark of the Covenant. But from the outside, the temple, the tabernacle, looked like a slaughtering house as the animals were brought for the purpose of atonement and for worship. Now, Leviticus was written by Moses. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. It's called the Pentateuch. That's the Greek term, Pentateuch. Uh, the Jews called it the Torah. That's the law, the first five books of Moses. Now, though we Christians may think Leviticus is not an important book, did you know that Jewish children first read Leviticus before Genesis or any other book in the Bible? They read Leviticus. 
That was what a young Jewish kid was weaned on, was this book. You say, whoa, that's pretty awesome. Why? Because the Mishnah, a commentary on the law, said thus, Little children are pure, and the sacrifices are also pure. Let those who are pure come and occupy themselves with the pure things. And so we have in Leviticus the order of pure worship unto God. That's really the theme of this book. And before we jump right into it, a few things about worship. Worship is one of the primary focal points of your relationship with God. It's something that should occupy a large portion of your day. Things that are done in worship of the Lord. A.W. Tozer, we have offered many of his books on our Connection radio broadcast, said that worship was the missing jewel of the evangelical church. True worship of God. The missing jewel. Actually, everything we do should be done in worship of the Lord. Now, we live in a society, one person put it this way, a generation that worships its work, works at its play, and plays at its worship. I'd like to see that trend reversed. Instead of becoming workaholics, how about worshipholics? Just in love with God. Now, here's the truth. When you come to God, you come to know Him. As we talked about this morning, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When you come to know God, you come to love God. The more you come to love God, the more you come to worship God. It's part and parcel of a growing relationship with Him. Worship should come very naturally. There are times when I'll be out just driving down the street. And being a very visually oriented person, I'll see certain things like a sunset. And this place has enough sunsets to just keep you going all year long. I'll just see the way the clouds are configured and the hues that God has chosen to paint His sky with. And there are sometimes I'll just pull over and go, what? That's awesome. And the worship comes naturally. It's not forced. It's not orchestrated. It's just the response of my heart to what God has done and to who God is. It becomes a very natural part of our relationship with God. True worship. Unfortunately, worship has been relegated to art rather than the heart. People are so concerned with, well, what is the right music to use. And I'm sure people would look at our church, our Sunday night group especially, and go, that's the wrong way. True worship must have an organ, and it must have stained glass, and it must be filled with robes, and some people are into that. That's their style. But we have relegated to the surface of what worship is and isn't, when it's really something of the heart. Remember the woman who was at the well of Samaria was all worried about the right place Where's the right place? Is it Jerusalem or is it Samaria? You Jews say Jerusalem, we say Samaria, this mountain. And Jesus said, woman, the Father is searching for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. It's a matter of the heart rather than the place or the art. And I have found that worship, that is true worship, has really little to do with the music played, the volume of the PA, the kinds of songs, or the worship leader himself. 
There's people who say, oh, the worship really was, you know, on a scale of one to ten. It was a seven, easy to dance to, nice beat, but, you know, it just, it really wasn't good worship. I didn't really get into it. That is because your individual worship life is lacking. If your individual worship life is lacking, your corporate worship life will be lacking. If your individual worship life is on fire, guess what? Your corporate worship will be on fire. It'll just be rich. It doesn't matter if it's the right music or any of those kinds of things. Your heart is before God. It's a natural response. Charles Spurgeon said, Why is it that some people are often in a place of worship and yet they are not holy? It is because they neglect their prayer closets. They love wheat, but they do not grind it. Water flows at their feet, but they do not stop or stoop to drink from it. Now, worship is the very highest activity that you can ever attain to in life. The worship and the knowledge of God. In the New Testament, and we'll quickly get into chapter 1, don't worry. In the New Testament, the term that is often used for worship is the Greek word proskuneo, which literally means to kiss towards. It was used of ancient people who would bow and grab the hand and kiss as a greeting. And I think that's such a lovely use and way to look at worship, a kiss toward God. I did a wedding one time where the bride secretly uh, planned to sing her groom a song. He didn't know about it, but she wrote a special song. And during the ceremony, I announced that the bride is a special gift for her groom, her husband-to-be. It's a song that she herself has written and she desires to sing right now. Now, talk about being on the spot. That's the place. But she turned to him, and as the music kicked, she looked at him right in the eyes and started singing this song. And he started breaking down and weeping, and the audience started weeping, and I'm sitting there weeping. And <laughs> I thought, that is a beautiful description of worship to the Lord. Singing to your groom, Jesus Christ, a kiss toward the one that you love. It's intimate, and it's part of our relationship with him. That's what our focus should be. And as you go through Leviticus, you're also going to see that God will not accept false worship. There's true worship and there's false worship. Now there's people who say, all religions are the same. Doesn't matter what road you choose. All of the religions are like a huge freeway. You pick your lane, but you're all going down the same road to the same place. It's not true. There's true worship. And then there's false worship. Now, we live in an age of relativism. You sort of pick and choose, like smorgasbord, your own religion, your own way to God. And you can do that. You can choose any way you want to worship, but just know this. God will not accept it. The worship that God accepts is the worship that God prescribes. You can't just say, well, you know, I, I kind of picture God as whatever. You could fill in the blank. Well, you can picture God as that. doesn't mean God is that because you have made him your wish fulfillment. God is who he is. He reveals who he is in the Word. Yeah, well, I sort of picture God as, and I like to worship God out in the forest all by myself as I contemplate a pine cone. Well, that's fine. But God won't accept worship that is not true prescribed worship. David found that out. David decided he could take that old ark sitting at the house of Obed-Edom down there and the valley and just place it on an old ox cart and carry it up to Jerusalem. And if it got a little bit crazy, one of his men would just 
steady it so it wouldn't fall down. And so he did it. And what did God do? He struck him dead. Because God said, when you carry the ark, the priest shall carry it. You will use staves that go in those little uh, eyelets and you'll carry it on the shoulders of the priest. You don't put it on an old cart and just pick it up and steady it whenever it falls. That's not the way I prescribed it. It's a certain way that God prescribes. Now we get in chapter 1, the burnt offering. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now there's going to be five offerings in chapters 1 through 7. The first five chapters take each offering one by one. Chapters 6 and 7 just sort of fill in the blanks some of the laws about the offerings. But a key term you're going to see as you go through this, and that is the term sacrifice. It's the term sacrifice. And you're going to see a lot of animal sacrifices. Know this. The very first sacrifice, God established himself. He himself killed the animals so that Adam and his wife Eve could have the coverings of skin after they sinned in the Garden of Eden. It was something that predates the law, the sacrifice of animals because of the sins of man. Now you see that in chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus. But not all of these offerings are for sin. Some of them are for fellowship. Some of them are voluntary. You don't have to do them. Just if you want to do them, you can. Now the sin offering, the trespass offering, you have to do it. Some of the other offerings, they're voluntary. If you want to, if you want to express thanksgiving and love to the Lord, go for it. And if you want to do that, this is the way it is to be done. Verse 4. Let him, or then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. We're going to describe what atonement is in a few moments. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar, lay wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. The priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now you can imagine that it would be a sweet aroma to anybody walking by. Take an animal, you kill it, you put it on that altar of sacrifice. You know what a good barbecue smells like in the neighborhood. You come home in the evening on a summer and you think, somebody is cooking and I want to find that house and I want to go in the backyard and take that. It smells so good. Well, I imagine that around the tabernacle, those animal sacrifices smelled delightful. 
But more than that, because this is how God gave the recipe to do it, this is the prescription for these offerings, if you do it before the Lord, that's the qualification, you do it with this manner, it will be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Now in verses 10 through 13, instructions are given if the animal is a sheep or a goat. Same sacrifice, just the peculiarities, what to do with, it, do with it if it's a sheep or a goat. In verses 14 through 17, if it's a dove or a pigeon, they are given. Now again, we mentioned that if you were to look at the tabernacle, it would look like a slaughtering house. If you wanted to be in the ministry back then, you'd have blood on your clothes all the time. The ministry back then was blood, was the, the slitting of the throats of the animals, draining the blood, sprinkling it in some cases upon the altar, cutting it up into pieces, pouring its blood outside the camp, on and on and on for these sacrifices. The blood proved that innocent blood must be shed to atone for sin. And there are types of Jesus Christ that run throughout this whole book, fitting descriptions, pictures of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. In fact, you might even say that blood runs through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the need of sacrifice for atonement. It's been called the scarlet thread of redemption. And again, we mentioned at the beginning of this um, sermon tonight, this message, this study tonight in our prayer, that Jesus, when he was speaking to the two on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples, it says in Luke chapter 24, And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus expounded to them all things concerning himself. Now, if he began at Moses, I'm sure he went through not only Exodus, but Leviticus. And he told his disciples, You remember those offerings, that sacrifice? And remember the word said, Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission? Well, I shed my blood once and for all for the sins of the world, that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. And he tied in, he wove that scarlet thread of redemption through the books of Moses concerning himself. Why is there so much blood? Because wherever there is sin or the failure to keep a command, there must be an atonement made for it. Because God is essentially holy and perfect. And God being holy and perfect, and man is far from being holy and far from being perfect, there's this huge gulf that is fixed between man and God. And you can't get over to God by your good works. God says he looks at him like filthy rags. You can't earn your way. So blood must be shed. One of the cardinal principles is without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And you'll notice, if you ever wanted to count them, offering and sacrifice occur 91 times in this book alone, showing that blood must be shed. Now, you've noticed something as we went through those verses. This sacrifice is voluntary. You didn't have to do it. You could do it if you wanted to. It wasn't enforced upon the entire nation. And it speaks of voluntary commitment and dedication as a worshiper to God. Now, they're already God's people. They already sacrificed the Passover lamb. They went through the wilderness. They're, in, uh, uh, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. They're about ready to finish the wilderness journey. But they've already taken care of the sins at the Passover. And there are going to be offerings for their failure with the sin offering and the trespass offering. However, 
This is an offering of, Lord, I love you. Lord, I'm dedicated to you. Because it's a burnt offering. It was totally consumed by fire, the parts that were put on the altar. It wasn't just barbecued, filleted, and then Moses said, Okay, guys, go for it. Have a nice meal. Now, some of the sacrifices were. You could eat a portion of them. Not only the priests, but the people offering it. This was to be totally consumed, and it speaks of my life is to be consumed in dedication for God. It's something that you do voluntarily. All worship, folks, to be true worship, must be voluntary. You can't force it. I've seen it tried. I remember as a young Christian going to a church one evening with a good friend of mine. Listen, I was green. I didn't know much about church or God or the Bible. I knew I loved Jesus, but I was about two weeks old in the Lord. And I went to this service, and the leader of this particular church was sort of walking around playing worship police with everyone. And he would tell us to stand, and then he'd say, Now raise your hands. And if your hands weren't up, you know, you'd go over to Your hands aren't raised up. Get those hands up. Put up your antennas. And, uh, you know, I, listen, I'm new, and I'm, I'm basically a skeptic. I'm not one to just follow the crowd right away. I'm just scoping it out. And he came over to me, and he said, Raise up your hands. And then he said, Speak in tongues. And I said, You're, You are not the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit directs my worship in that way, I will submit to that. But you're not the Holy Spirit. He got very angry with me. And I talked to him afterwards about it because, again, I didn't know that much about it. But true worship is a response. It's something you want to do, and so it was with this sacrifice. It wasn't orchestrated devotion. It was voluntary devotion. Now, I think this would correspond beautifully to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, don't you? I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present... Your bodies is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He didn't say, I force you, I command you, I beseech you. It's the most reasonable thing you can do. In view of all that God has done for you, the smartest thing you can do is voluntarily devote your life to God. And I think you ought to do that on a daily basis. I think when your eyes open in the morning, before your feet hit the floor, Lord, I dedicate this day to you. All of it, it's yours. I'm your vessel, I'm your instrument, my body is yours. Go for it. Use me. I'm excited to see what you're going to bring my way this day, good or bad. I will accept it. I will embrace it. But just use me for your glory. I'll tell you what, you'll have an exciting day, whatever comes your way, with that kind of an attitude. Notice the sort of victim that is required in verses 2 and 3. And verse 10 and verse 14, cattle, sheep, dove. But it talks about a male without blemish. Now some of you women say, I've never met a male without blemish. But this is an animal now, remember. A male without blemish. There were two types of defects in ancient animals. There was the spot and a spot was an acquired defect. Let's say you had a perfectly normal animal, but it got itself injured. It got itself nicked and some of the fur wouldn't grow out in it, or there was a gash that healed but you could still see it. That was a spot. It was an acquired defect. Then there was a blemish. That was an inherent defect. When you offer your sacrifice to God, make sure that it's pure. Look it over. Examine it. Don't just slop anything up there on the altar. Make sure it's the best that you offer. How often people think, oh, hey, it's just for God. <laughs> He'll take anything. 
So we plop our bodies down in church and we snore through the entire thing, saying, well, I've done my duty. I've gone to church. Did you give God your best? Or just leftovers? Honey, we have that old chair out in the back in the garage. It's broken. It's no good. We might as well give it to the church. Let God have it. We can't use it anymore. And since we can't use it anymore, let's give it to charity. It's beat up. Now make it a, a lamb without spot, without blemish. Now Jesus Christ was the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist said. And listen to what Peter wrote about him, keeping what we just read in mind in verses 2 and 3 and so forth. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. It cost the Heavenly Father His best, His only Son. Now, when we worship, worship involves sacrifice. It does. Sometimes worship isn't easy. Oh, but I'm so busy. Oh, but I want to give this money to God's work. Oh, but I'll tell you what, there's a sale on and I could buy this nice thing with it. Oh, it's a really a sacrifice for me. I, I can't buy that new CD or that CD player. But true worship, true sacrifice does cost you something. Remember David, when he came to look at a place to build the temple for God. He went to the threshing floor of Ornan, which is right on the top of that mountain in Jerusalem. He said, I like your threshing floor, buddy. I'll buy it from you. Ornan said, David, hey, you're the king and you want to do a good work. It's for God. You can have it. It's free. David said, no, I'll pay you for it. Tell me the price. No, 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 no. This is for the temple. This is for God. You can have it. Go for it. It's yours. David said, I will not offer to God anything that costs me nothing. That was his principle. It's got to cost me something. Then I can offer it. And so it was a lamb without spot or blemish. Note what was done to the victim, verse 14. If the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, and this is, uh, uh, you know, there's prescriptions given if it's a goat or a, sh uh, a lamb, but also if it's birds, but this is very graphic in verse 14. Then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar, its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. Now, what this shows us is the result and the consequence of sin. It demands life. It destroys, ultimately. It will destroy your life, ultimately, if you toy with it, if you give in to it, if you play with it, if you're devoted to sin, it will take your life. Now, you might make it through this life unscathed, but I'll guarantee if you're not going to let somebody else stand in atonement for your sins, you will take your sins on yourself, and you will be destroyed by your sin. Sin is destructive. That's why a wise person, before he engages in any activity or makes any choice or gets involved in any relationship with a person or decides to buy anything, a wise person will look down the road and find out what will be the result of the choice that I'm making. Not just short term, but long term. Oh, it'll make me really happy. Yeah, short term. 
But don't just be a wise guy, be a wise man. And look ahead. I have friends who love to go whitewater rafting. They love it. They're good at it. I have a friend, a pastor friend of mine in California who's almost an expert at this, and he's been trying to get me to go for some time. And I thought, okay, one of these days I'll let you take me and we'll just we'll go for it. He's, he's really good at it. But he always charts the river. He looks at it. He scopes it out before he puts his boat on it. He doesn't just say, any water will do. We'll have a great time. What if he decided to take his rafts and his crew and go up half mile just up from Niagara Falls? And he decided to just have a great time. He didn't know it's down there, you know, the falls. Or maybe he's on his raft and he sees the falls going. Now, if he goes over Niagara Falls, I'll guarantee you, he's going to have a great rush. The ultimate. It's going to be, and it's probably, probably the river right around Niagara Falls is just as exhilarating as any place you could whitewater raft. But being a wise person, he knows the result of making that choice. Death. And so he's going to say, you know what, I'm going to choose another river. I'm going to be wise. I'll look at what's going to come ahead. If you're wise and you see the destructive path, you'll turn from it. You make wise choices. Chapter 2 is the grain offering. It's an unbloody sacrifice of grain. It's ground fine. It is not left whole or coarse. Then it's mixed with olive oil, as you're going to see. It was given. It was burned. The rest of it was given to Aaron and his sons, and they would bake it, make loaves of bread out of it, and eat it. It was part of their support. Now, when they offered grain in those days, they didn't go down to Smith's or to Furs and buy a little package of it. They had to do it themselves. They had to grow it. Then they had to grind it on these huge stones or sometimes the small pestles to bring it down to size. Then they'd have to grow the olives and crush the olives. You just don't buy olive oil on the shelf in the Old Testament days. You would take it and you would put it on a large flat stone. You would take a round stone that went in a circumference on top of that flat stone, tied to uh, a piece of wood, and a donkey was tied to that, and he'd go around in circles. And he would crush the pits. That's where the oil is, by the way, not the pulp, but the pit of the olive. And uh, after strenuous grinding, uh, then separating the oil from the rest of the juices, that would be his olive oil for the lighting of the lamps, for worship, and in this case, for the grain offering. He would have to prepare it himself. It was a work of your hands. And it shows you that once you come to God, God is still interested in work that you would do for Him. God has a job for your hands, a ministry for your life. Let's read the first few verses. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. His handful of fine, he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take it. Uh, take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is a most holy offering of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Verses 4 through 6, instructions if you bake it in an oven. Verses 7 through 10, if you bake it in a covered pan. Verses 14 through 16, if it's the first fruits, that's the whole grain that is still green in, in its head. 
Look at verse 11. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. Remember when they went across the um, Red Sea, the Red Sea opened up and they were making their Passover meal? God said, don't use any leaven when you bake your bread. Because you don't have time for that stuff to rise. You've got to move quick. You just get ready. Leaven became a symbol of corruption later on in Israel's history. Because it permeates the whole loaf. It becomes a symbol of fermentation and corruption. Jesus said to the disciples, Beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, two different places. One, he says, leaven is hypocrisy. In another case, he says, leaven is false doctrine. Did you know that false teaching leavens the Christian life? If you don't get truth, but you get heresy, you get false teaching, it takes all the power. It depletes the Christian. He doesn't become a soul winner anymore. He just becomes an arguer or becomes somebody who's bent on some little truth. When uh, we were at the Billy Graham crusade, yeah, I don't know if I should, yeah, I'll tell you. When we were at the Billy Graham crusade, we were out front after the crusade, and there, were this, there was this little group of people that were just bent on anti-Billy Graham stuff. They just wanted to say, Billy isn't this, and he doesn't do that, and he's not this, and there's this little clause here, and it's, their whole life revolved around that. They got into this weird teaching, and, well, he doesn't preach true repentance. And I just heard Billy Graham that night preach repentance five separate times. You must repent of your sins. But here's this group of people, and they got their little booklets, and they're passing them out, and all they are is on this anti-campaign against a person. It's ridiculous. Leaven. Leaven their life. The best they could do is to pass out their stupid little pamphlets and tell people they shouldn't listen to the gospel. I was with Greg Laurie, and it bothered Greg so much, he just took the literature, ripped it right out of the guy's hands, ran down the street, and threw it in the trash can. And the man said, oh, that's Christian love, isn't it? And I said, that is Christian love. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We don't want to let you leaven the rest of the body of Christ that's here. And so we will do with people who bring false doctrine into this church. They come in. They'll bring out their little pamphlets, or they'll take the young Christian aside. Let me tell you something. Well, why don't you raise your voice when you tell them that? Because they're afraid of the accountability, that's why. And they'll say, oh, this isn't the true gospel. Come to our little group. And they'll seek to take the young who are undiscerning and by their leaven steal them away. Leaven, in the scripture, becomes a symbol of sin. So you don't add any leaven with this. Nor does it, it says in verse 11, do you add honey to it. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, honey was a favorite offering that the pagans used in their sacrifices to pagan gods. And God is saying, I want your worship to be different, not like the pagans. Pure. Don't use any honey. That's what the pagans do. Number two, honey is a natural sweetener. And so you don't add anything to it, just leave it of itself. No other influences, no other natural sweeteners, just all by itself. That's a good enough sacrifice. Now there are people who try to bring in their offering and their worship to God their own natural sweetness, their own good works. Well, I'm a good person and I've done this and I haven't done that. And they have their own system of righteousness. They try to offer it to God. God will not accept it. God will only accept you in His Son and because of the blood of his son. 
all of your natural sweetness, if you are trying to become right before God by your checklist of good deeds, God will say, it is as filthy rags. Now, you might be good. I'm not denying that. But are you good enough for God? Are you good enough for God to accept you? I'm not. I would never dare say, God accept me because I'm such a great person of this and that and integrity and you know my track record. And I'd say, oh God, please, mercy. Mercy. No natural sweeteners, Lord. Just take me as I am by your grace. So, verse 11, the grain offering made with leaven, you shall burn no leaven. Uh, you shall not be with leaven or any honey when you burn it, when you bring it. Verse 13, in every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Honey and leaven did not prevent corruption. They enhanced corruption. Salt prevented corruption. Whenever you have a sacrifice, you put salt in it, it's a natural preservative. It will prevent the spread of corruption. In the ancient days before refrigeration, they would take salt and rub it into the meat to preserve it from bacterial spread corruption. Honey would promote corruption. Salt would stop the putrefaction or the corruption. Also, it would add flavor. Now let's apply that. In all of your offerings, you should bring salt. What did Jesus say you are? Salt of the earth. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. Quite a statement. It implies something about the world, that it's corrupt. And it applies something about Christians. They are to prevent the spread of it. And number two, they are to add flavor to life. Now, in this state, people don't like meat and potatoes all by themselves. I found that out when I first moved here. We like chile. Not chili, chile. And we like it hot. Listen, I've been corrected many times. It's not chili, it's chile. And it's a certain kind. And tell you what, it's, we like spice in our food here. And for somebody from the Midwest to come out here and go to a regular restaurant, you know, it about kills them. You know, they've never had food like this. We love it. We're used to it. It adds flavor. Hey, salt now. Forget salt. Not only salt, but add the chili, the Tabasco, and everything else. Salt added flavor. You're the salt of the earth. You ought to bring flavor. People without God are living a dull and insipid life. That's why they crave pleasure mania. They're looking for pleasure in every conceivable corner. They had to look at your life and go, man, you're fulfilled. You're having a great time. Your life is, is enriched and enhanced. How come? Huh. I've got so much to live for. And your life is also, because you're living that way, you're making people thirsty. Salt did, did that too. They eat stuff with salt. You want a big old glass of water. People should be living around you, and they should say, I'm thirsty for what you have. That joy, that peace, that direction. The satisfaction. Chapter 3 is the peace offering. Unblemished cattle, sheep or goats. These animals were killed at the door of the tabernacle. The blood was poured out on the altar. Verse 1, when the offering of sacrifice is made, when his offering is the sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. 
He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering, kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. You're getting an anatomy class here as well. Verse 5, And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice which is on the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now part of it, notice, was to be burned. The fat that is on the inner parts, the entrails, the uh, fat on the right thigh, the breast, the kidneys, part of it went to the priest. The breast and the right thigh of the animals were given to the priest so he could eat it. And then the rest of it, as we read it, went to the family of the worshiper. This is the only sacrifice that was not just consumed by fire or part given to the priest. Part of it was burned, some of it was discarded, uh, another part was given to the priest's family for their survival, but another part was for the worshiper to eat himself. He would partake of it. He would enjoy it. It would be a celebration of a meal before the Lord. Verse 6, if his offering as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it, and notice again, without blemish. Now this is called a peace offering. The Hebrew word is shalem, from the word shalom. In its root word, it means well-being. Well-being. And the idea is, this is the response of a person who is in right relationship to God. He's in a state of well-being before the Lord. He offers up what's called here this peace offering. And it indicates a desire for fellowship. Okay, I'm going to take it, burn it, you eat it, I'll eat it. Remember, the ancient Hebrews, whenever they would eat something, believed they would enter into intimacy. Let's say I invited you over for dinner. If I was Jewish, if I was strict Orthodox Jewish, I would make sure you're Orthodox Jew. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't come in my house. The reason being is that if I allow you to come in my house and I give you bread, which I am compelled to do if I invite you in my house, I give you meat at my table, if I eat that bread and you eat that bread, it breaks down in my body and that bread becomes a part of my cellular structure, becomes a part of your body as well. We thus become one because we're sharing the same source. God forbid that I would become one with someone who is ceremonially unclean. It's a peace offering, a fellowship offering, some translations call it, that speak of intimate fellowship between the worshiper and his God. Did you know that in the ancient Near East, when a guest or a host, excuse me, would invite the guest into his house and put him down at the table, he was responsible for his well-being. He would serve him a meal and he was sworn to protect him. It was a covenant that was made. If you come and you eat the same food as I do, I'm going to protect you. If somebody comes in to kill you, I'd kill them first. I protect you. I'll stand up for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea of fellowship and intimacy. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear that, open the door and let me in. I'll come in and fellowship with him or literally sup with him and he with me. We'll break bread together. Intimate fellowship one with another.
Now, I want to apply that. This is a fellowship offering. God desires your fellowship. And I really want you to get that in your heart. God wants your fellowship. So often we talk about, I want God's fellowship. That's good. But did you know that God wants your fellowship? That's why he created you. Your quiet times, times of prayer and reading the Bible, aren't just for you. Oh, sure they are. They're to make me feel good. No, they're not. Oh, they make you feel good when God speaks his word to your heart. But they're also for him. God gets off on the fellowship you have with him. He loves it. He created you for that purpose. He delights in hearing from you. There is a booklet I refer to often, and I would recommend it to you for you to get it and read and keep it often around uh, your devotional table or your bed. It's by Robert Boyd Munger. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a short little navigator's pamphlet. And it speaks about it. It's written from the perspective of inviting Jesus into my life, into my heart. And as I invite him into my life, my life is like a big house with many rooms in it. And Jesus seeks to invade each of those rooms. He goes into the living room and he puts new pictures on the wall. He puts new literature in the library so that I'm reading good, wholesome stuff and seeing the right kind of pictures. He wants to redecorate. And so he draws this analogy of God coming in and changing my life. And in part of the booklet, he talks about how he was enjoying this time in the drawing room with Jesus every morning, retreating in fellowship. And they would talk together and they'd read the Bible and Jesus would speak to him. And it was a great time. But he got busier and busier. This is what he said. Little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why? I don't know. But I thought I was just too busy to spend time with Christ. This was not intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss a day every now and then. It was examination time at the university. Then it was some other urgent emergency. I would miss two days in a row, and I would do it more often. I remember one morning, when I was in a hurry, rushing down the steps, eager to be on my way, as I passed the drawing room, the door was ajar. Looking in, I saw fire in the fireplace, and the Lord was sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, I thought to myself, he was my guest. I had invited him into my heart. He had come as Lord of my home, and yet here I am neglecting him. I turned and went in. With downcast glance, I said, Blessed Master, forgive me. Have you been here all these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you that I'd be here every morning just to meet with you. Then I was even more ashamed. He had been faithful in spite of my faithlessness. I asked his forgiveness, and he readily forgave me, as he always does when we are truly penitent. And then he said, You know, the trouble with you is this. You have been thinking of this quiet time, this time of Bible study and prayer time, as a factor in your own spiritual progress. You have forgotten that this hour means something to me also. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at a great cost, and I desire your fellowship. Now, he said, do not neglect this hour, if only for my sake. Whatever else may be your desire, remember, I want your fellowship. When you remember the peace offering, remember that God instituted it to signify the peace, the well-being, the satisfaction we have with the Lord. And it speaks of intimate fellowship as the worshiper would eat part of it. 
burn part of it, and the priest would eat part of it. We're sharing intimately together. God loves your fellowship. Now in verse 17, This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall neither eat fat nor blood. Now I've got to tell you, I don't know why, but the Jehovah Witnesses have interpreted verse 17 as meaning blood transfusions. I don't know where they get it. I've looked at it in the Hebrew commentaries and as linguistically as I know how, and how you could stretch the prohibition to consume or to eat blood into a blood transfusion, I have no idea. But I do know it's cost them many lives of innocent victims because the Jehovah Witnesses forbid their people to go out and get one if they need one. Now I know it's dangerous to get one today with all that's going around in polluted bloodstreams, but to prohibit it based upon this is tragic. And yet it's been done over and over again. Children have been allowed to die stretching the scripture. 